Well, I am excited to start this new series called Till Death Do Us Part. Um, and it makes a lot of sense to start it this week, as Jeff has already pointed out. This week is Valentine's Day, so gentlemen, you have had two warnings. There is no excuse for you. So you might say, well, thanks, and now I was planning on forgetting it, and I thought I had an excuse, and now my wife knows I heard about it. So, sorry, we took that away from you. Be a good husband, do something nice um, if your wife values Valentine's Day. But I do firmly believe that whether you've been married for decades or days or whether you hope to one day get married, this series is going to be a blessing to you because what we're going to do is we're going to highlight the real mission of marriage. That's what we're going to talk about today. We are going to navigate some of the parts of marriage that actually end up being the most destructive to people and their relationships. And today I'm going to share something extremely exciting for all of you, okay? Here's what I'm going to tell you today. Ready for this? For all you married people. You got married for the wrong reason. Aren't you excited to learn that? You came to church. I mean, and I, okay, I can't say with 100% certainty that everybody got married for the wrong reason, but I will say that 95-ish percent of us probably did, and I'll tell you why that's a problem. It means you have a lot of us who are trying to squeeze something out of marriage that marriage was never designed to give. It's like trying to use uh, the wrong tool to get a job done. Uh, For instance, yesterday I used an iron to get the wrinkles out of this shirt, and it worked good because that's what it was designed to do. But if I looked at that iron and thought, this gets hot, I'll bet I could cook a steak on it. I could probably do it, but it would, in fact, I've seen people on the internet do it, because it's the internet, but, you know, the people that I saw, it, it, it worked technically, but it was so much messier than it needed to be, and it wasn't nearly as good of an outcome as if they just tossed it on the grill. So... There's a lot of people who are struggling with marriage because they're trying to get something out of marriage that God never designed marriage to accomplish, and that will create some major problems. And so a lot of couples, Christians included, struggle in marriage, and the problem is rooted in the very foundation of why we got married in the first place. And so when we learn the mission of marriage, or the purpose of marriage, the reason for marriage, And and when we try to understand and take that to heart, I really believe that that can be a life-changing thing for those of you that are married. It can have a transformative effect on your life together. Now, before we talk about what the mission of marriage is and talk about what the right thing is, I want to talk about a couple ways our culture has really gotten wrong. I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last several decades, we have become a culture of extremes. Not a lot of people hanging out in the reasonable middle territory anymore. We just, in every topic, we want to just fly to the edges, it seems like. And I'd say for about the last 50 years or so, we've been doing that with marriage, with two extremes. The first extreme is this. Marriage is everything. Your whole life is found and finds purpose in marriage. This is the perspective that I think is a lot of our culture. It goes back to the heart of every rom-com and most movies that ever had love interests in it. It goes back to most of the Disney movies I watched growing up and you watched growing up. That The, the fact that um, life doesn't really begin even until you find your Prince Charming or your Cinderella. Everything before that is a waste. It's not even really life. It's just like the runway. You don't really get to take off and, and take flight until you find that right person. And in the movies, you'll always notice that the conclusion is the wedding, okay? But that's not the end because they say, what do they say at the very end of those kinds of movies? Like especially Cinderella, and they lived what? Happily? 
You can't be happy until you're married. You don't have your ever after until you're married. That's what everything says. And this extreme, extreme perspective that marriage is your whole life. Marriage is the goal of life. Marriage is the starting point of life. Your your life won't matter until then. It creates a huge, huge problem because what it does is it creates a enormous weight and puts it on your marriage, more specifically on the shoulders of your spouse. And you get married and you say, you're the one that's supposed to fulfill my life. You're the one that's supposed to fix me. Before, I'm ma- before you're married, your life is incomplete and broken. You're incomplete and broken. But then you get married, and they find ful- add fulfillment to your life. They complete you. They make you feel whole. They finally give you, let you be a valuable, productive, real adult. Finally, now you can live once marriage has started. They're the ones that give your life meaning. They increase your self-esteem. This is where, this perspective is where you look at your spouse, and, and they're the one you're trying to get all the joy All the satisfaction from life out of them. It's your spouse's job to banish any low self-esteem or any problems of, you know, I don't matter, I don't count, there's stuff wrong with me. They're supposed to get all of that out of your life. All of that is their job. And if you try to live with this perspective that marriage is everything and try to get the value of your life out of them, you will crush them under the weight of your expectations. And you will be chronically disappointed And they will be chronically frustrated and exhausted and defeated by all the ways you keep telling them they don't measure up to what you thought married life would be. And if you got married, I mean, just think about this. If you got married, and then the next day, day one, day day one, the first full 24 hours of your married life, you woke up and you roll over in bed and they're looking at you saying, give me fulfillment, give me meaning, make my life worth it. You're going to think, I haven't had coffee yet. And like, did I make a mistake? This is, what is wrong with you, right? But we don't act that way, but we believe that way, and we sometimes live that way. But no human being can be the basis of your identity, of your value. No human can be your only source of fulfillment in your life. That's just a crushing weight that nobody can bear on their shoulders. I don't care how great they are or how dreamy he is. Nobody can bear that weight. Only a growing and deepening relationship with God can do that for you. And that's why I think for a lot of people, and this shouldn't surprise you since we're in church, I think marriage is the foundational, or or a relationship with God, excuse me, is a foundational element to having a proper marriage because only God can carry the weight of your world and give you identity and give you meaning and purpose. And so you can overemphasize the meaning of marriage, and you can really see one of the ways our culture is highlighting that in the fact that modern weddings, on average, now cost tens of thousands of dollars. <sighs> like, I got married 10 years ago, right as that, you know, people were really gearing up for all those reality TV shows on weddings and, and Pinterest, and everybody's getting carried away. So I did not spend tens of thousands of dollars on my wedding, and the fact that I I'm scared of debt and things of that sort. I've been watching these shows. Both of my sister, one of my sister-in-laws got married in the last year. One of my sister-in-laws is getting married. And so every time I'm around my sister-in-laws, we're watching wedding shows and talking wedding stuff. And I watch these people getting married and they're spending the price of, at minimum, a new car on their wedding. I'm just starting to have a little internal panic attack sitting on my couch thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to ruin their lives. Because half of the time you think, what if they don't? make it, and the debt's going to outlast some of these marriages, and it just wigs me out, and I can't hardly stand it. But we think, 
oh, we have to celebrate in this grand way because what is this, what is this party, this day, this celebration, the wedding day for? It's for telling the world, my life can now begin. I can now be a real functioning human being. And so come celebrate that I'm joining the club of all you other functioning human beings. And the rest of you that are still single, you come and you bask in how awesome I am and be sad that it's not you. Like, and so we've spent all this money and we celebrate this because marriage is everything. But ultimately, it's just going to end up crushing your spouse and your marriage under the weight of ex- expectations. Now, the second extreme, you probably know what it is going to be. It's that marriage is nothing. And you've heard people say this. I don't need some piece of paper to tell me I'm in love. I don't need the government telling me that I'm married or that I'm committed to somebody. I don't need some boring old religious guy to stand up and tell me what makes my life matter and what my marriage is made of. I don't need any of that stuff. And so marriage has become this thing that is nothing. And so people are trying to get all the benefits of marriage now without the marriage. All the, you get the sexual relationship, the saving on rent or mortgage because now you can have one instead of two, um, the closeness of being together all the time, all the benefits of marriage without any of the understanding and the commitment that makes those blessings really a fruitful, life-giving thing to you. And so the first extreme, I think, you know, marriage is everything. I think that extreme comes from the fact that, you know, human beings, we just naturally look for fulfillment. And that first extreme is just misplaced fulfillment. That's all that is. I think the second extreme is partly a reaction to the first extreme, saying, you guys are crazy. I don't want any of that, so I'm going to go over here and say marriage is nothing. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to live with you. We're going to save on rent, and that's going to be a great thing. We're not going to go into debt for a party that lasts one day, and they're all grumpy and stodgy about it. But I do think there is a section of people who say marriage is nothing, not because they believe it, but I think it's some guys who want an intellectual-sounding argument to have the sex and the closeness and companionship without any of the commitment that goes along with it. And so they've learned their little speech of, oh, I don't need a piece of paper from the government, when really all it is is they just don't want to commit. They want all the benefits without being tied down. And both of these extremes are wrong, and I think they can be devastating to relationships, and so we need to have a proper understanding of what marriage is actually for. And like I said, I'm almost betting none of us got married for the real reason that God tells us marriage is for. And so let's figure that out. Um, There's a guy who wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. His name is the Apostle Paul. The reason he is an apostle is because he was one of the few guys who had a meaningful encounter with Jesus after he died and resurrected. So he had a meaningful, life-changing encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And then Paul went on to be a church planter. So he traveled all over the Roman world in the first century planting churches. And so he'd stay with the church for a while, get them taught up, get them raised up, create a bunch of Christians, and get them some elders to lead the church, and then he'd move on to plant another church. And then Paul, after he had left a church, he would often write letters back to those churches, those Christians, to give them further teaching and instruction. And most of our New Testament are just Paul's letters to those churches after he had left them. And in one of his letters to a church in a city called Ephesus, Paul does a nice little section on marriage. And in that section on marriage, we find two verses that show us exactly what marriage is all about. So Ephesians chapter 5 We'll start in verse 31. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, what he's doing here is he's just quoting Genesis. This is the part of Genesis where God is marrying Adam and Eve, and he's kind of telling them, here's what this relationship is going to be about. And he says, you two become one flesh, or you leave mom and dad, and you become one flesh. And so there's kind of two parts to this marriage ceremony. The first part is the leaving of mom and dad. And there's a lot of problems that can start in a marriage relationship simply because you have somebody who didn't fully disconnect from mom and dad. And this doesn't mean you cut mom and dad out of your life. This is a, this is a, tr- a transition of allegiance, a transition of devotion. Mom and dad aren't the ones supporting you anymore. They're not the ones that you go to for every question. They're not the ones you plan your life with anymore. You have someone else that is your new primary relationship in your life. But yet I've seen a lot of uh, marriages that got a little hostile because, again, somebody didn't disconnect from mom or dad the way they should. And then you got a mother-in-law or a father-in-law who are so involved with the day-to-day life that it's like having a third wheel. And you sit there looking at your husband thinking, hey, dude, you're 32. Cut the cord, man. Come on, move along. But this is more than just moving out of your house so that your parents can turn your bedroom into a workout room that they never use. This is actually a change of allegiance. Again, not cutting mom and dad out of your life, but it's this this transition to your main family. And it can be hard because your mom and dad, for a lot of us up until that point, they're your main family, your main support system. And so to kind of say that that's not what it, it can't be what it always has been anymore is difficult because a lot of us just don't know any other way. So the first part of a transition is to leave mom and dad. The second part, it says, is to... Hold fast to your spouse. So you leave mom and dad, you part with them, and you hold fast. The New Testament was written in Greek. And that word, or the words hold fast there are actually a translation from the Greek, a Greek word that means to, ad- to be adhered to, to be glued together. So these, this is a, a, a thing where you are getting glued together in such a way that it's as if these two things become one thing. Um, one little experiment that people often like to do when they talk about marriage is t- taking two sponges, putting super glue or something, Gorilla Glue, on them and put them together and then, then try to rip them apart. You can't rip them apart cleanly anymore. They've become this one thing. And so if you get a blue sponge and a yellow sponge and you try tearing them apart, there's going to be yellow on the blue and blue on the yellow because they've been so stuck together. This is what marriage is supposed to be. It is your life being glued to that of your spouse where your Your future, your dreams, your plans, your everything gets intertwined together. And so Paul says these two parts, this becoming glued together, or being leaving your father and mother, and then you get glued together so that you become one flesh, one thing. And Paul says this gluing together, this becoming one flesh, happens for a very specific reason in the next verse, verse 32. He says, this mystery of how two people can become one thing is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying that becoming one flesh, becoming glued together in devotion and love and care is in some way reflective of how Jesus cares for us. That your marriage and my marriage, the love we show to one another, to our spouses, is in some way supposed to reflect how Jesus has loved us. Now, like I said, That's not why any of us got married. You didn't get married because you wanted to show Jesus to the world in a better way. 
You got married because you were in love. And it was like a movie. And it was great, and it was wonderful. And you wrote letters to each other if you're older. You sent texts to each other if you're younger. You, some of you, you remember when your relationship first got started those early days, and you spent all night talking on the phone. You know, oh, baby, I just can't be without you. I just got to hear your voice. And I'll, I'll stay on the phone even after you fall asleep just so I can hear you breathe because I love you so much. And it's this wonderful thing. And every time you see them, your stomach almost ties up in knots. But not in a bad way like when you're nervous. In some good way like you've never lived before. And you are just have this whole new energy and lease on life because you're just in love and love. And you want everyone to know. And so this relationship just kind of takes over. And it makes you feel kind of high on love, high on life. And you'll do silly things like you'll drive four hours to see them for three hours, and then you'll get in your car and drive back four more hours. You spend double more time in the car than you spent to see them, but it was worth it because, again, you're in love, and you couldn't stand to be apart from them one more day. And, you know, one thing about it in those early days is you're always done up. You always dress nice. Always got your hair just right. Got your makeup on and all that stuff, you know. There's no, no nasty clothes. There's no gases leaking or squeaking out of your body at that point you because you're saving that for later that's a special marriage surprise you know that we all keep for a later date but 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 it's funny how we didn't get married for for Jesus we got married because we were in love and what's interesting is science tells us that those early stages of a relationship what's happening is chemicals are flooding your brain and those chemicals do a couple things one it makes everything they do seem great and it takes all those bad things that they do and say and think and are, and it kind of makes you blind to them. And that it's a reason for that. Because if we didn't have those chemicals flooding our brain and making us feel so great, we'd probably never get married to anybody. Because we'd see their flaws for what they are. And we wouldn't be committed to them yet. And so we'd say, you know what, I'm, I'm out. You know, I don't want to deal with that. Because instead of you just thinking, oh, he's so funny, you would see the reality that he's actually kind of immature. Instead of thinking she's just the pinnacle of beauty, and why isn't she on magazine covers? You think, yeah, she's pretty good looking, but what is up with those feet? Like, she's pretty and everything, but I don't know if I can look at them toes for the rest of my life. And so you would have this clarity to see them as they are, and we probably wouldn't be willing to commit if we saw all the flaws as they truly are. That is something that our brains decide to save us from until we are married. And so the chemicals, they're a good thing because it kind of keeps us, you know, in, it kind of gets us through that, that stage of making commitments. But if that's what we're coasting on, that chemistry, that excitement, then you will get into marriage and you will be wholly unprepared for the problems and the difficulties and the up days and the down days that come with that. Because the second that wears off, what are you going to do? If you got into your marriage because of how they made you feel, because of how exciting it was, because of how beautiful or attractive or alluring you found them, that's all about you and how they've made you feel. And, and again, that's not terrible. Your brain's doing it to you. You really don't have much of a choice, it doesn't seem like. But what's binding you together? Where's the lasting power of your marriage? What happens when he doesn't make you feel a certain way anymore? What happens when she doesn't look the way that she did on her wedding day anymore? What happens when that, that, that thing that just irritates you about them, what happens that day you realize, that's never going away. That's just who they are. 
What do you do then? What do you do when beauty fades and weight is gained? When the excitement level drops off and life gets a little more boring and mundane and it's more about routine and paying bills and washing dishes and doing laundry and not about, oh, I'm so in love. What happens when that change happens? What happens when one of you gets chronically ill and the whole landscape of your day-to-day life changes? What happens when they break your heart? See, that's one of the dirty little secrets of marriage that nobody talks about is that when you take two people and you try to make these two lives into one, you're going to break each other's heart. You can't be that close together, that intimately entwined without somebody hurting the other. It's just a part of life together. And if, you're, and if it's all about how they've made you feel, well, what happens when all of that falls apart? Well, trade them in. If that's all, that, if that's all it is, then just trade them in. Find somebody else who's going to give your brain that chemical rush and make you feel so in love and give you all the warm and fuzzies again. That's as simple as that. But what if there's more to it? What if, as, as Paul says, this joining together is actually meant in some way to reflect the love that Jesus has for you? What if you're supposed to love them? The love you have for them is supposed to be inspired by the way that God has shown his love for you. Well, there's no better one-sentence explanation of God's love for us than Romans 5.8. It says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what if we let Jesus' love for us inform, instruct, and inspire the way we treat our spouse? Because Jesus pursues you and loves you every single day, regardless of whether you're good or not. Regardless of whether you're doing what you're supposed to or not. Regardless of whether or not you are lovable Jesus loves you not because you are awesome and doing great things. He loves you in spite of the fact that you are not awesome. I mean, because most of us, we wake up and we do things still to this day. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. We'll still have days where we are overcome with just anger and bitterness, and we treat people according to our anger and our bitterness. There are days when we sin and we fail. We do evil things, selfish things at the expense of other people. We're crude. We're rude. And all of that, you'd think, makes us completely unlovable. And yet here comes Jesus, and he loves us anyway. And it says, This glued together relationship, this one flesh relationship that we are to have in marriage is to be that kind of love. Where you love somebody, not because they're lovable, not because they're giving something to you, whether that's a feeling or an excitement, but you're loving them simply out of a devotion and you're going to be there with them no matter what, for good or for bad. And so the mission of marriage is not to give your life fulfillment. It's not to make you happy. It's actually better than that and more than that. It's, it's mi- marriage with a mission, and it says this, or this is what I'm going to say for this series, is that to be married is to join together in a covenant relationship that reflects how Jesus relates to the world. And a covenant is not a word that we use a lot in our culture, but a covenant, it can be two-sided or one-sided. But a covenant says, I'm here for you no matter what, Period. It has nothing to do with how the other person treats you, responds to you, speaks to you, or anything. Marriage is meant to be this covenant relationship where I will love you good days or bad days, period. My my willingness to love you is not changed or influenced by how well you love me. That's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. And there is to be some way that when we get married, our marriage is supposed to be some sort of a parable to how Jesus loves the world. So that when your spouse is a little bit less than the best, and you keep loving them and giving them your best, that's, a, that's you modeling Jesus for the world. 
And when you're less than lovable and they keep loving you, that's them modeling Jesus for the world and people around them. And so on the days when you want to make it about you, when your spouse is downright unlovable, you've got to remember you are not there to treat them as they deserve to be treated. You are there to treat them as Jesus has treated you. Loved you even when you were at your worst, in your deepest moment of darkness. And you know, I'm not saying that making this the mission of your marriage makes all the problems go away. It doesn't. It's not like a light switch that just, boom, clears out all the bumps and bruises that are going to come with marriage. But I will say this. This will make you have a marriage that can withstand the bumps and bruises that are going to come away. Because, let me just tell you, some people think that when they can just, you know, follow their emotions, like, I loved you so much, oh, this is so great, oh, you don't make me feel that way anymore, I'm going to dump you and find somebody else. That, they, they call that freedom. That's slavery. When every day of your life, you are bound by what you wake up feeling. There's nothing more hindering and exhausting and ruinous to your life than being dragged around by your whims and notions of everyday life. And so, we let the sacrifice of Christ that he, he gave for us at our worst, we let that to drive us to sacrifice for our spouses even when they're at their worst. And I know that is not the most encouraging thing you've probably ever heard about marriage until you are the one being the worst. And you wake up and somebody says, boy, you are the, a pain today, but I love you. You know, and they give you a big old smooch on the forehead and, and carry on. I mean, there's days when I've said stuff and done stuff to Abby, and she is so kind and so sweet. You know, by the way, you ever, how you see her on Sundays and stuff, and you meet her, and she comes across as so sweet and so nice, and she's just that way all the time. There is no other side. Like, it's not like we get home, and she's like, hey, go clean the bathroom. Go do that. Like, there's none of that. Why did you say that at church? Why did you tell that story in your sermon without asking me? I probably should get that more often than I do, but I don't. She's just so kind and so sweet, and to be on the receiving end of that love, even on days when I know I have not been that great, and some days I'll be sitting there, and I'm, I know I'm not the best husband and best dad on a particular day, and she'll just like, man, I'm so glad we're together, and I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> like, really? Okay, well, thanks. I mean, then it makes me feel guilty. I'm like, I better step up my game. Like, before she realizes, you know, what's going on here. Um, but, but that's the thing. This doesn't sound great when you're saying, oh, you want to love somebody when they're not being good because you intuitively want to think, well, what about me? What about my needs and what about the way they're treating me? Well, then you just think, well, what about Christ? I wasn't honoring him, glorifying him, living for him, living the life he called me to live, and he loved me anyway. I was hurting people, treating people terribly, lying and cheating and stealing or whatever life you had before you met Jesus, and he loved you anyway. And you think about that love, and you show that to your spouse, and you hope that they show that right back to you. And so this isn't going to fix all the problems, but it will give you a marriage that can endure through problems and, and difficulties and hardships. And so as we're going to cover a lot of ground in this series, we got to always come back to the fact that this is where it starts. Everything in your marriage hinges, it balances on the fact that we must be people who are committed to showing Christ-like love to our spouse a mission-minded love. Jesus loved me, and that is my job as a follower of Christ to live that love right back to you. Your love is not just a wonderful story to write books and movies about, even if it's a great story. Your love is primarily a reflection of Jesus' great love for this world that he died for. 
So let his love drive you to be humble when you pridefully feel like you have the moral high ground. We've all felt that way. Your spouse did something and you think, oh, what an idiot. Oh, I'm so much better than them. They got peanut butter in the jelly jar. What a moron. And, you, and they're like, what's the problem with having peanut butter in the jelly jar? It's all going to end up in the same place anyway. And you're thinking, I can't live like this. It's anarchy. Some of you know which side you're on. Some of you are right there with me. You can't cross the streams until it's on the bread and you eat it. And some of you are like, what is the big deal? I didn't even know it. I didn't know it was a big deal, right? And so some days, okay, your love is, n- is based not on how they deserve to be treated, but you are basing your love for them on what Christ has done for you. And you are letting his love push you to be gentle and humble and kind, regardless how they have been that particular day. And so if you're married, let me just tell you what I want you to do this next week. I want you to start connecting the dots in your brain between how you love your spouse and how Jesus has loved you. Whether they're great, whether your spouse is awesome this week or not, hopefully you're on your best behavior after this sermon and where we're going with this, and hopefully because it's Valentine's Day, but whether they're great or not so great, take those moments to say, I love them not based on how good they are or, or this rough day that they're having. I love them based on how Jesus has loved me. Try to start connecting those dots in your brain. Think about it every day when you look at the person that you're married to. And if you're not married and you hope to one day be married, start to maybe connect those dots because you're told that life is going to be fulfilled by everything and it's not how marriage was designed to work. Let Jesus' enduring love for you guide you and inspire you to do things for them even when they might not be deserving of them. Because only when two people show this covenant Christ-like love to one another can you truly discover what love is, something that can last till death do us part. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the love you've shown us in Christ. It's amazing how this love that you have for us is, is supposed to be basically the foundation of how we live, how we treat other people. How we, how we view ourselves in light of who you are and, and where we are in this journey you have us on. But I pray, Father, that we would not let this love you've shown us in Christ be lost on us in how we live, our, live out our marriages. That we would, as Christians, let your love for us drive and inform and, and saturate this married relationship that we're a part of so that we would treat our spouses not as they deserve to be treated and they would treat us not as we deserve to be treated. But we would elevate ourselves to a higher level of love, the love that you have shown us, where we love on good days and bad days, love through thick and thin, love when it's easy and love when it's hard, love when, when we get something out of it, and love even maybe when there's nothing immediate in return that we get. And I just pray, Father, that we would understand that that's so much better than the light and fluffy romantic side of love that's often portrayed in movies and books and tv shows a marriage or or a love that you know it's it's good because everything's good we want a love that's good and, and stable even when things aren't so great because when two people can show each other that kind of love it's amazing what can happen in their relationship it's amazing the trust and the life and the joy that comes from from that true real romantic love when we get past that fluffy stage and we move into something greater, the kind of love you've had for us. You designed marriage to be a beautiful thing where we learn about how you love us and we, we, we take our appreciation for the love you have for us to a deeper level that we could never do on our own. And I pray that we would understand that our marriages are supposed to in some way reflect you, to take a quality 
of your love for us and, and let that saturate our married life together and saturate how we live together and what the world sees of our relationship together so that no matter what is happening, people look at us and they see you. To the glory of your mission, to the glory of your good, to the glory of, of your son who you gave to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have hope and life beyond this world. Thank you for all you do. May we understand that the mission of marriage is greater than what a lot of us have been raised to think. And let us be glad that it's more than what we've been raised to think. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.